Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to another show of Creation, Myth, or Miracle. The last couple of episodes we were looking at claims of the Bible being full of errors and internally contradicting itself and those types of things. I'm sure you've heard claims like that out there. And very often where the Bible is claimed to just flat contradict what everybody knows to be true, it's in the area of time scales, things that supposedly took a very long time where the biblical chronologies simply don't allow for that time. We discussed mudstones back on the September 19th show, and if you have an interest in time scales and geology, I suggest you go to my website and listen to that particular broadcast, September 19th. Two-thirds of the entire geologic column are made of mudstones, and it was always taught that they formed exceedingly slowly as mud slowly settled out of water that had to be perfectly still. And these thousands and thousands of feet of mudstones were very often pointed to as proof positive for millions and millions of years of time and proof positive that the Bible doesn't talk about history. And on that show, we related the details of the observations in the world of science where they finally figured out, well, mud can actually settle out of moving water, even with fast currents, and how extremely obvious this fact was when you just look around you after it rains and there's mud on sidewalks. Those secular authors indicated that this requires a reinterpretation of the majority of the geologic column. If any of you come across any uh, scientists that are saying they need to reinterpret the geologic column, please let me know. Thus far, that evidence seems to be completely ignored. Well, let's look at another type of geologic evidence that's often pointed to. Sedimentary rocks. How in the world are sedimentary rocks formed? Well, here's a fairly typical description of what supposedly happened. This nice picture of layered sedimentary rocks, the nice layers you see wherever there's road cuts, traveling along the freeway and they had to cut through to keep the road nice and level for us. And you can see exposed hillsides and you see those nice layers where they're clearly uh, separate bands of rock. Here's the description of how this supposedly formed. Another important feature of many sedimentary rocks is that they are layered, as shown by the sandstone at the left, or as I said, as shown as you're driving along the freeway. Maybe millions of years ago, a flood caused a layer of sand to be deposited. Then maybe a few years, or many years later, another flood left another layer of sand. And this process continued for millions of years the lower layers gradually getting squeezed more and more by the heavy deposits above them, when you put enormous pressure on sand for a long time, the sand grains fuse together forming sandstone. The process of turning loose material into rock is known as lithification. Well, that all makes perfect sense until you start looking at some of the fossils contained within these layered sediments. In particular, I want to talk about something called polystrate fossils. Poly meaning many, and straight referring to the stratum. So a fossil that goes through many strata is called a polystrate fossil. And there are some really cool polystrate tree fossils where they're vertically in the strata and they go through many, many feet of layers. 
So let's think about how this could happen, given the traditional description. In fact, one of the classic locations where this occurs is in Yellowstone at Specimen Ridge, where what we're told is there's 27 separate forests of trees that grew in place one above the other, and the trees were then buried by sediment, and another forest grew on top of that one. Well, think about it for a little bit. How long could it take for the sediment to form around these trees without the trees being eroded away or rotting away? Combined with the fact that the trees seem to be missing their roots, there's some clues there that they didn't actually grow in place like we're told. Now, usually when a tree dies, it falls over perhaps, gets burned, and it just lays there and rots. It doesn't turn into a fossil. So how do you get a 50-foot, say, section of tree completely buried quickly enough to turn it all into a fossil where the tree is vertical? You have to lay down those 50 feet of sediments rather rapidly. In fact, in general, to get any fossils to form, large ones in particular, you need to bury the object, the creature, if it's a living fossil, quickly enough in sediment so that it isn't scavenged apart and destroyed, it isn't dissolved, it doesn't just rot away. And the fossils we have have intricate features, well-preserved. I mean, they're phenomenal to look at. All of this argues for a very rapid, catastrophic burial of those particular fossils, and modern geologists no longer try to hang on to the purely uniformitarian view that was pushed in the late 1700s, deliberately to get away from the biblical chronology, by the way. Well, that notion that everything occurs slowly and gradually only by the forces we currently see and only at the rates that we currently see them is so completely bankrupt that nobody really believes that anymore, even though some students seem to be taught that, or at least they think that's what they're being taught. The more modern view, I believe, is typically called actualism, and they talk about episodic deposition. In other words, rapid deposition occurs for a short period of time, and this rapid deposition, excuse me, explains how the fossils we observed were buried and preserved. But then there's no notion of applying rapid deposition to large chunks of the geologic column, let's say thousands of feet all at once, because it would simply destroy the entire time scale. So in essence, when you read some authors and try to picture what they're describing, you picture a rapid catastrophic deposition of sediments, and then nothing at all is there for millions of years, and then another quick, rapid deposition of some sediments, and then no evidence of the millions of years of time in between. So you look at a hillside and you say, let's see, everything I observe represents a series of rapid deposition episodes, but the entire thing is supposed to represent perhaps hundreds of millions of years, but there's no physical evidence at all for 99.99999% of those hundreds of millions of years. Rather an interesting theory when you think about it. We're talking about the physical evidence, fossils, and other structures that are formed specifically in the geologic column, 
And considering the issue of how long did they take and how much time do those observations actually represent, because it is so often claimed that geology proves the earth is billions of years old and thus the biblical history is pure nonsense. Or rather, it's not meant to be history at all. It's mythical to convey those spiritual truths and God had to lie to us because we couldn't understand the truth. I never quite get that one. At any rate, so you've got trees penetrating many, many layers of strata, these polystrate trees, and supposedly forests that grew on top of each other. Well, what did we actually see happen at Mount St. Helens? That volcano exploded, sideways by the way, and a huge chunk of earth slid down the side of the mountain into the lake at the base of the volcano. And it sloshed an enormous amount of water a mile up the hillside of the adjoining mountains. And then the water rushed back and it scoured an estimated million plus trees down into the lake. So there's Spirit Lake with a million trees floating in it. By the way, the trees mostly don't have their root balls because they were sheared off. The roots were left where they were. And we've got pictures and video of the trees laying there on the top of the lake, bumping into each other. And as the wind blows, they move from one side of the lake back to the other. And what do you think happens? They bump into each other a lot. And all the bark gets knocked off the trees, so the bark has settled to the bottom of the lake. In addition to other sediments from periodic mud flows down the side of the mountain and things like that, that are also putting sediments onto the bottom of the lake, at a exceedingly faster rate than was going on without the volcanic eruption, by the way. There is a superb DVD presentation about this eruption and the geologic effects that occurred afterward by Ph.D. geologist Steve Austin that is readily available at almost every creationist website and store. It's probably available nowhere else. And an interesting thing was observed to happen. After they floated for a while, some of the trees switched from horizontal to upright posture. The heavy end of the tree, especially as they became more waterlogged, would sink to the bottom and the lighter end would be poking up. And you had these tree, these logs really, floating, many of them vertically. And then as they got more and more waterlogged, some of them would settle down to the bottom and they were actually photographed standing on the sediment at the bottom of the lake. And then as more sediment comes in, they get buried in place there. And different logs, different trees settled out at different times, and thus they wind up at different depths in the accumulating sediment at the bottom of the lake, precisely what we observe at places like Specimen Ridge. It has nothing to do with a forest growing in place. It has to do with a catastrophic event. Now, given that Yellowstone is, I believe I have heard, the largest volcanic cauldron on the planet Earth, it wouldn't be surprising to see effects similar to what we see at other volcanic eruptions, although on a smaller scale at Mount St. Helens, certainly. So just know there are other explanations for what we observe, actually much better explanations than the standard story, that don't involve millions or billions of years. They don't need to involve more time than is allowed in the biblical time scale of just a few thousand years of Earth history. Well, let's switch from talking about 
tree fossils to talking about opals, a particular type of stone. At opalsinformation.com, you can find the following. Recent research into the deposition and genesis of Australian opals has been challenging the widely accepted scientific theory of a slow and gradual process of lamellar, layer upon layer, opal deposition over millions of years. There is also conjecture as to the exact geological timing when supersaturated silica solutions began the journey to becoming opal. Some older texts quote 60 to 100 million years as a base point. In more recent studies, a complex ion exchange process that can be demonstrated under laboratory conditions shows that in geological terms, opal could have grown more rapidly, perhaps in as little as 2 to 3 million years. The presence of aerobic microbial remains in opal has been the focus of studies suggesting bacteria act as a bioreactor, resulting in enzymes and acids important in the formation of opal. This would suggest that opalization process occurred quickly during the early Cretaceous period over 100 million years ago. So notice now what they call rapidly is perhaps as little as 2 to 3 million years. I mean, that's considered really rapid to some geologists, but it still happened over 100 million years ago. Well, let's dig a little deeper into the actual formation of opals and see what else we can find. How about from ehow.com, the website? Traditional theory. Most scientists believe that opal deposits were formed through a sedimentary process when water-soluble silica in inland ocean created a gel-like substance that filled in crevices in the ground. Over time, the water evaporated from the gel, leaving the silica structure intact. They estimated that it takes 5 million years to make a layer that is 1 centimeter thick. Notice it says they believe, not they have demonstrated in a lab. However, the site goes on with new discoveries. Australian scientist Lynn Cram has been able to grow natural opal at a much faster rate, one centimeter in three months. Due to his experiments and observations, he believes that opal deposits may initially form very quickly through a process called induration, and that these deposits then release their water much more slowly than traditional theory predicts. So, traditional theory, one centimeter takes five million years, but in the laboratory, one centimeter takes three months. That's only a difference of a factor of 20 million times faster than traditional theory claims. Well, I believe I first heard about Lynn Cram and his experiments and his discoveries in opal formation at least as far back as 1989 when Ph.D. geologist Andrew Snelling wrote an article about this in the Creation Ex Nilo Technical Journal. It turned out that Len spent a couple of decades or more investigating and trying experiments on various ways of forming opals. By the way, he was self-taught. He left school when he was 15, but earned a Ph.D. Interestingly, he said his Formal academic training occurred after his actual work. He'd completed most of his opal growing research, but he determined he needed to earn a Ph.D. and have academic credentials just to get his work accepted in scientific circles. That says an awful lot about what's going on in scientific circles. 
and it turned out that other researchers had examined opals closely under the microscope, looked at how they were formed, what they were made of, and produced an artificial opal way back in 1968 that was comparable to natural opal, and they even took out patents in England and the United States. But they realized there was a danger to their work. If they could produce opal cheaply and artificially, it would undermine the value of natural opal and bring economic ruin to the opal mining industry, so they tried to keep a lid on their breakthrough. Well, Len Cram was eventually able to use their research and his own to determine how to do this. In 1975, Len had his first success, and then he kept building on it from there. Once he figured out the chemical environment needed to grow opals, he figured out how to grow the most natural-looking opal anyone could imagine. He had examples of all the various colors of opals, all grown in his shed. And it was so natural-looking, there are even different color bars with different patterns and lines of potch between them. They look real because they are real. His process apparently is mimicking the process that actually formed them in nature. His opals grow at normal room temperature without any pressure or mechanical assistance. His latest opals even look exactly identical to natural opal under an electron microscope. The other earlier attempts by himself and other scientists looked noticeably different when it was looked at that closely. So how long does it take Len to produce opals? Well, it says in his jars, the first touch of color appears within 15 minutes. In three months, he gets that one centimeter of vertical growth that we mentioned earlier, 20 million times faster than the traditional story claimed it would grow. It turns out the actual formation of the opal only takes a very short time, just a matter of weeks. What takes longer is to expel the water from the opal itself. Lynn said he succeeded because he was prepared to look at the scientific problem completely unshackled by evolutionary and uniformitarian assumptions, an attitude different from that of other scientists. So as we now know for fact, because we can watch it happen in a lab, it does not take enormous amounts of time to form opals. It simply takes the right chemistry and conditions. There's a very good and very detailed article on opal formation at AnswersInGenesis.org. Now, Lynn Cram believes not only can opals form rapidly, he's proven that, but he believes the opals we find in sediments are in fact young and were formed quickly with the same process that he's discovered. One Australian Northern Territory opal miner recounted how he discovered some high-grade colorful opal underground but after a short exposure to sunlight, the opal lost its colorful patterns. And Lynn says this suggests that some mined opal is not yet stabilized, pointing to recent formation. So, here's another piece of data for you. Opals do not take a long time to form, despite what textbooks may tell you. Combine that with the fact that mudstones do not take a long time to form, and the formation process described in the textbooks is simply wrong. Dinosaur bones have measurable carbon-14 in them, indicating that it is impossible that they are millions of years old. Dinosaur bones and other ancient fossil bones and feathers contain soft tissue residue, or rather, actual soft tissues that were original to the creature when it was alive, and we know that those types of 
organic structures and even molecules based upon real laboratory science and chemistry cannot be millions of years old. And so it goes. We look closely at things that we can observe in the lab and find that the time scales we're told in the traditional interpretation of Earth history are not substantiated. In fact, they're contradicted dramatically. We look at the laboratory of Spirit Lake just north of Mount St. Helens and we see vertical trees settling out and being trapped in sediment very similar to the specimen ridge polystrate fossil trees. And it happened in front of our eyes. Very little time, especially compared to the standard geological story of millions or hundreds of millions or billions of years. On our September 19th show, we did a quick overview of several different types of evidence, all of which point to things happening much, much faster than we're told they happen, and several things which simply defy the notion that the time scale has even been there. Well, most of today's show has been discussing the type of supposed error that is in Scripture in which science shows a time scale completely incompatible with the thousands of years history that Scripture documents. And we've just talked about several types of evidence from the world of geology, stone formation, fossil tree formation, polystrate fossils, mudstone deposition, etc., that are completely consistent with the biblical time scale and, in fact, don't match the traditional time scale at all. If you just look at the data and say, is it really possible dinosaurs haven't been extinct for millions of years and that's why they have measurable carbon-14 ages in the fossil bones? And that's why the biological tissues and structures still exist? And is it really possible that the majority of the geologic column could have been settled quickly out of moving water? And that fossils can form quickly and even gemstones like opals? Is it really possible that there was a worldwide flood like described in Genesis? A flood of that magnitude would dwarf everything we're familiar with in terms of what floods can do. And what we're familiar with is pretty substantial in terms of laying down enormous amounts of sediment and creating very large geologic structures almost instantaneously. So if you dare to think about that at all, you reach the conclusion that there really isn't some kind of proof here that the biblical story has to be false. One other type of geologic evidence that we'll talk about on another show in some detail is where flood waters have carved landscape in a variety of different ways. And these structures that are sitting there in front of us that we observe had been traditionally understood to take an enormous amount of time, that good old uniformitarian geology being applied to it. But where the physical evidence is finally accepted that shows these structures occurred very rapidly. There was rapid and large-scale erosion in several cases caused by catastrophic draining of inland lakes. There were lakes that were formed during the Ice Age, and once things were drying out, in some cases you had an ice dam, for example, that controlled a very large lake behind it, and when the dam was ruptured, the lake drained catastrophically. 
Now just imagine the kind of flooding we'd have if the entire content of the Great Lakes flooded its way out to, say, the Atlantic Ocean or Hudson Bay over a period of just a few weeks. That would create devastating changes to the surface of the earth. The denial of the biblical flood, despite the evidence, is not a surprise to those familiar with the Bible. Second Peter 3 tells us that scoffers will come. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So they deliberately ignore the evidence of the creation and the flood because they really don't want to deal with a coming judgment. Look carefully at the world around you and seek God and the truth. See creationmythormiracle.com. <laughs>